unwavering when we say Black Lives Matter. Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Ready for Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan. And with us today is co-host Scott Raven. Welcome, Scott. Hello there, VJ. How are you today? Hello, hello. Um, so today we have a special guest, um, Conchetta Abate, who is a classically trained violinist turned improviser and composer. Grammy.com describes her, her original performances as a mix of violin and delicate vocals that float between worlds of modern classical, neo-folk, and poignant and poetic verse. She's performed with ensembles in, in New York, including Park Quartet, Femilodi Chamber Music Collective, and the Creative Music Orchestra. Her studio albums of original music spanning generations of neoclassical jazz, experimental, and folk. Her dance and film scores have been performed at Lincoln Center, the Fashion Film Festival of Milan, as well as the Theater for the New York for the New City. Notable music compositions residencies include TAC Gallery in Berlin, as well as the Robert um, Robert Rachtsburg Foundation. <laughs> Sorry, uh, in 2014 she founded a music ed program called Teacup Music, which provides sliding scale music scale music lessons to students in Brooklyn. Her uh, teaching work has received funding from the Brooklyn Arts Council um, and many others. Conchetta is a uh, voting member of the Grammys Recording Academy. She holds a degree in music education and cultural studies from Smith College, as well as uh, BA, as well as Columbia University MA. Welcome, Conchetta. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you, thank you. So, um, yeah, so why don't we start the conversation off a little bit about your uh, musical education and uh and, and your intentionality, I think in, in the pre-interview questions, you're talking a little bit about how intentionality kind of guides you. So it might be an interesting thing to talk about, about your intentionality with music and, and how that kind of how intentionality guides you in music. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I started playing. <laughs> yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. Put the mic yeah, in the you. right place. Yeah. Uh, I started playing violin when I was really young. I was like four or five years old. Um and kind of learned singing alongside playing the violin um, since I was a kid. And um, I studied classical music, but uh, probably because uh, my parents were in a disco band when I was a kid. That was a professional band that toured and had a manager, and they were very serious about music. Uh, You know, my dad was like a jazz uh, electric bass player, and my mom was playing electric violin and singing like disco ballads and stuff like that. So even though I had like a very classical training from the beginning, I was surrounded by a lot of non-classical music and non-classical musicians. So um, I always never completely felt like I 100% fit into the classical music world because I really liked improvising um, since I was a kid and... I really liked playing by ear. And so while I was studying my concertos as a kid, like I was also playing in bands. Um, you know, when I was in high school, I had a grunge band. Yes. And what was the name of that band? It was called From This Window. Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. And, um, and then when I was applying for music conservatory, I really could not find a program that really encompassed all of my musical interests. And also I had some very abstract ideas about what being a musician meant. Um, 
I think now there's a lot more programs for creative string players, but maybe when I was younger, which, you know, more than 10 years ago, it was very limited. And so I was applying to these classical conservatory programs, but I was writing these essays of intentionality that were like, music is like water and Uh it flows through us and it's vibrations. And I'm sure these like professors were reading this, like, this is not (laughs) the Bruce Lee of a violin world. That's it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, and I also, you know, I did do, I did get into a music school and I went for one year and I very clearly saw that the, only trajectory available for violin studies was going right into playing in an orchestra or auditioning for orchestras. And um, it just really didn't capture, you know, my full skill set being an improviser, being a singer, being someone who likes to write music. Um, So I pretty much just like dropped out of the music program. I continued to study music as an undergraduate and took lessons in composition and violin. But I switched my track more to like cultural studies because um, mm. I, I was, I think my interest was more in like how, because I was surrounded by so many genres of music. Like how do all these different genres make sense? How do they speak to each other? So really I ended up studying something more like ethno musicology. Um, so I, I transferred to Smith College and like that was a place where there were just so many different subjects and things that I could draw from to kind of create a sort of independent learning experience. Um, And so, you know, when I came to New York City immediately after graduating, it was like the best thing ever because I, you know, walking through the subways and the streets, like you hear so many different, excuse me, styles of music. And I joined like an Ecuadorian fusion band that was playing in the subway And I was like, it seemed like just this smorgasbord of like, Mm -hmm. you could pretty Mm -hmm. much like jump into any genre of music in New York if you're that kind of person who wants to like just learn, you know, and they were so welcoming um, these like uh, Latin American, you know, South American musicians. And they taught me a lot of their folk music and I sang and I sang in Spanish and played in their band. Um, it was called Inti and the Moon. They are still really active in New York. They're part of the like Music Under New York program. And then from there, I joined some other um, different projects. I played a Sicilian Tarantella fiddle for a dance company. And my heritage is Sicilian. So that was really interesting for me to learn about the kind of music that my grandparents would have listened to. Um, I played with Mariachi Flor de Toloache. So I played in like a Mexican oh. <laughs> band. And then I have always been really interested in um, kind of like straight ahead jazz and, and learning about improvising over jazz changes. So I've just kind of floated through a lot of different like musical worlds throughout my 20s and being someone who feels comfortable really playing by ear um, it was kind of fun for me to draw on all these different styles. Mm. Um, I also had a free improvisation project with a guitarist named Charlie Rao, where we just played purely free improvised music. Um, and we had a lot of 
I think I think we had a lot of success kind of in the new classical new music scene. So I was just always kind of like floating around in all these different music scenes. Um, I eventually um, went back and got my master's degree in music from Columbia University. Um, and I also focused on education because I'm very passionate about teaching. And I think my passion for teaching comes from having felt frustrated with the lack of op- of op- options within my own music education mm. as a kid. And I, I feel like I would totally teach kids differently. Like I wish mm. I had a teacher when I was a kid who said, like, instead of telling me I'm not focused, tell me like, oh, like maybe try that thing because that's your unique voice. Right, you know? be okay to yeah. fail and that sort of thing. I know, you, yeah, you had mentioned in your... Um, in your bio something about the trauma of perfectionism uh mm-hmm. and yeah that struck both of us uh of kind of yeah being it's okay to kind of make that mistakes but we're taught so young you know practice makes perfect and that mantra kind of goes through the head could you talk a little bit about maybe some of those experiences that that cause you to you know change your teaching teaching style a little i think bit? practice makes perfect is really like the biggest lie because no human can actually play any piece of music perfectly. Mm. When I listen to the most like top quality violinists in the world, like some of my favorite violinists, like um, Hilary Hahn is, you know, definitely on my, my list of favorites. And even in the earlier era of like David Oistrich, um, you, you still hear places where, um, you know, it's up Perlman too is another favorite of mine, but you still hear places where, maybe the octaves are a little bit imperfect or they have to slow down the tempo in a way that, you know, they don't lose their finger pattern. And it's not something that you would notice if you didn't play violin, but if you're listening really carefully and you've studied those pieces, you can hear like, they're not really mistakes. They're just like ways that professional musicians um, play the music in a way that caters to their strengths. Mm. Um, So I think, um, that is kind of like the secret, I think, that isn't taught from the very beginning. Um, you know, in the very beginning, you're taught like everybody has to play it exactly this one way. However, if you try to do that and you play it for 10 different judges, they're all going to hear like some different thing like wrong with it. You mm, know? Yeah. So there's also this side of it where I think the people who transcend that kind of thinking, they also are like, well, I don't care what you think. I've found my own voice. I found my own interpretation of this. Um, and I think like, I think it's, it's very hard to get to that level. I imagine those people who do get to that level had some kind of mentorship that encouraged them, you know, and I, I don't think the majority of teachers teach in this way. Um, I think it's easier to just teach by the book and like exactly the way you learned and, Mm. you know, just teach the, the traditional, interpretations um and also teachers have to problem solve like Mm. every student has like a different way of learning so if you're not um as a teacher if you're not like reflexively open to how that student is learning you won't adjust your teaching style for that student and that might not be a good match so is it your belief that that every student has the, the ability to become a great artist um Everybody has that within them. I definitely believe that. Mm. So I think I put, I, I was looking at your interview questions and I said something like, you know, I think talent is like 
this really overblown yeah. idea because like really whether or not somebody can express themselves and play in a, in a beautiful touching way or play very um, proficiently that has to do with like nurture and access to resources. And when you really think about how expensive musical instruments can be, how expensive music lessons can be, how expensive all of that can be. Mm. And then it, even if you have all of those things, you need a safe, quiet place to practice. I mean, yeah. the amount of hours of practicing that go into learning an instrument, especially violin, is tremendous. Like you might need to practice three, four or five hours a day. So if you don't have a comfortable living situation to do that in. So there's all these like practical pieces that have to come into play to I, create even just neighbors uh yeah. that, that you know are okay with hearing it all at all hours as well it has to be the right environment that's yeah. just a good point and also it seems like um you know that when we have like classically trained you know when we have this kind of a uh, focus on classical music classically trained musicians we're kind of not including or having a scope for people who are learning on their own or learning independently or learning mixed genres as you have mixed genres and like being able to create a vocabulary that's bigger than just limiting, uh, narrow minded, you know, narrow focused vision of, of what music is about. And I imagine like each genre has its own dialect or language and being able to cross all those genres or being able to find the universality in the language is part of the skill in, 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 mu- in playing music, I think, and what I understand. Yeah. Yeah. I think coming back to that idea of intention, um, I think at the end of the day, um, I want to, I, I, when I was younger, I wanted, I was very self-centered as you are when you're young and I wanted to find my own voice and do that, you know, but now I'm like, I'm thinking about, okay, I'm not just making art for myself. I'm making it for other people. Mm. Um, so one of the cool things about having access to so many different genres and styles is you have many different languages to speak to many different people. Yeah. So I want to make music that people like listening to that, you know, when I talk about experimental music, I don't mean like random scratching yeah. on a wall or something. Yeah. Cause like maybe that could be a part of a piece True. in the context of something, yeah. but like it also has to have a larger narrative and a larger purpose that people yeah. are very interested yeah, I think there's also like a, almost like a biochemistry behind it because it's like what, what the ear, what the human ear can kind of pick up on and what they kind of understand what the human beings, oh, we all have kind of common biology that we're kind of responding to music in a way that's very, it's, there's a cultural, um, kind of layer to it, but there's also a biological layer that we're responding to the body, responding somatically to music, you know, all these kind of things. So, you know, mm-hmm. all humans have that basic understanding of music. And then we kind of have the cultural, as you're saying, the ethnocultural um, layer in which, you know, we have genres and we have all these kinds of things. But there's that basic nerve that we're hitting. Yeah. 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 I think that is like a really cool thing that you start to see when you study a lot of different genres of music is that the universal things that speak to everybody is rhythm Mm. and, you know, the expression of the music and also the moments of space. In the music, there's always going to be silent moments in music that elevate the moments that are more active. So there's like these really vague sort of general shapes mm. that exist in in all these different kinds of music. Mm. 
Now, if we, could we talk a second? I guess we're just, you know, coming out almost of a pandemic. Had you performed some uh, Zoom type performances and how might that have changed the sound and changed kind of the way uh, music was being received? Oh, um, I did a couple. Li- I did. I think I did two live Zoom performances and they were completely bizarre. I was really stressed out about getting the sound right. Yeah. Um, and then you really have no control over what's happening on the other side because right. they might yeah. be listening on like really crummy speakers. And um, I thought it was strange not to have the audience reaction, but like you have this little chat box so you can kind of like look and see mm-hmm. what people are typing in the chat mm. box. Um but after doing the two live performances, and I think they went well, but honestly, it caused me so much stress yeah. that what I ended up doing was um, I went upstate to Cold Spring with a friend of mine, and we made a really beautiful video. And so after that point, anytime somebody asked me to do some live stream concert, I gave them like clips uh-huh. from this video because mm. I felt more at peace. Like I was out in nature and I was able to just um, take as many takes as I wanted and um, mix the sound. And um, I felt like I could project the more, you know, the energy that I wanted. The Zoom performances or online, it was really not yeah. a great experience. Yeah. It wasn't for many musicians. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah. we were from the poet poetry perspective and mm-hmm. just, you know, just that energy of, people being in the room and i can understand with the intro like really feeling the 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 music uh there's a bit of a disconnect uh with with uh with with that um i'm also curious i guess you you know you're such an eclectic background of of so many different uh mixing of genres outside of music maybe artists that you've collaborated with or things that interest you uh within that realm um even outside of, of music art you you had mentioned poetry uh those types of things Yeah, I think um, it's really fun as a musician to work with artists who are not musicians because um, there's, again, many commonalities, but different approaches, different pacing of how different artists make their work. And there's a lot to be learned from interdisciplinary, um, Mm. you know, working in an interdisciplinary way. So um, I've been working for probably a decade with this poet named Cornelius Eady, who um, actually just released this year an album of pandemic folk songs, um, which I played on and wrote some of the string parts for. Um, And so that's a collaboration that's been going on for a really long time. And it's just so interesting to set poetry to music because it's not written um, to highlight the music. The music has to be written to highlight the poetry, mm. which really changed the way that I write songs from working with a poet, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, and then thinking about when you are trying to sing poetry, it's not easy. Like it's mm. the, 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 you know, you're yeah. like tripping over the words. And so that made me also think about like sparseness in how songwriting is actually, it doesn't require a lot of words. So there's like differences in that way. Um, but aside from working with poets and writers, um, I've done free improvisation accompanying a professional storyteller in live performance named Robin Beatty. And she does everything from children's stories to ghost stories to, you know, everything. And 
I'll just sort of bring my violin and some odds and ends instruments and like do some music accompaniment to highlight her storytelling. Yeah. And then also I've worked with choreographers and dancers composing music for dance. And I think it's so cool to sort of, as a musician, like I'm not out front. Mm. Um, I'm there to support the other art that's happening. Um, Same is true for working with um, videographers. Um, The piece that I composed for my friend Vera Complos short film, La Tessa, she kept saying to me, like, the point of this is to, like, highlight the visuals. This is not a music video. This is, like, we're highlighting the visuals of the of the yeah. video. And that's actually really challenging to do. Yeah. I wonder about, like, the phraseology. Like, you're basically getting down to the moment where it's, like, you want to express something in a, in a musical phrase. And then you have the different uh, intentions with that phrase. You know, like, whether it be highlighting the visuals or whether it be kind of speaking another genre. Um or working with musicians who are in a different genre, do you, do you like, how, what is the, like when you get to the basic building blocks, it's like it, one building block, how would you express it different in different ways? Like maybe we can try to experiment with like one phraseology that you have in music, a musical movement, and then like how you'd express it differently mm-hmm. in different genres or different intentionalities. Maybe we can try doing that because you have your violin here. So maybe we can try saying like, oh, this phraseology, like if I had the intention for this or my intention for that, you know, like how you'd compare sounding like it differently but the similar building block you know i mean that's so interesting because um when you work with non-musicians you have mm. to get really good about t- talking about music without yeah. using musical terminology yeah like i'm not gonna <laughs> say like this is my cadenza and like this is in this time signature and this is like that those terms don't help you when you're yeah. working with dancers dancers yeah. count music in a completely different way the cues are different like I'm not going to cue by, you know, breathing and looking at the other musician. I'm going to cue maybe my cue is the dancer moving their foot or something. Mm. So that is just that has opened up my mind so much about my own creative process. Like when I just go and write music for myself, like yeah. you don't have to think about it. You know, Western classical, European classical music rhythm, for example, is like very in a, it's written in a very boxy way. It's mm. like all these boxes and then the boxes are divided into like different subdivisions. But maybe like music can also just be felt and it can be communicate, communicated through body language. You know, mm. there's that too. And that's what you have to do when you work with non-musicians. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And like there's so much cultural stuff that goes into like whether or not something sounds happy or sad or in love. Like yeah. I could, I could try to like be like, oh, okay, I'm going to write this in major or minor or some mode, uh, but the, but that doesn't mean anything to yeah, the, the dancer or the poet, you know, I've heard, for example, the Darth Vader theme music played uh-huh. in the opposite. I think it's in minor and it was uh-huh. played in major. And then it sounds completely different. It sounds like happy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's totally. Completely you just need like one note. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm also, I guess I'm also interested uh, when you're collaborating with dancers, you know, the music for you is, is the focal point, but are, do you become the focal point? Are, are you moving with the violin ever? Are you uh, uh, the way that, that you're kind of uh, playing? Does that become a point of focus in addition to the sound? It really depends on the choreographer and the mm. piece. 
So I, the first choreographer I worked with, the first time I ever wrote music for dance, was with Sheena Annalise, who runs Arch Contemporary Ballet. And she had this wild idea that, like, the string quartet was going to be on the stage with the dancers mm-hmm. and spread out on the stage. This is a terrible idea for musicians because we can't hear each other, yeah. you know? And it was just, like, the musicians were like, this isn't going to work. It was very, you know challenging to meet the needs of the choreographer and also the needs of the musician and then the visual aesthetic. Um, Like, for example, a cello, like, can't walk around and play, but she wanted the cello to, like, walk around and play. So we discussed it, and then we decided the cello was going to be the pivot point in the middle, and the musicians would, like, move around the cellist. Um, Then the music had to be, like, very simple because there might be a situation... Because the music was composed after the dance was choreographed. <laughs> it was really a very experimental approach. Yeah. So that was the first piece I did. But then the second uh, choreographer I worked with was Wendy Osserman. And I did the composition in collaboration with Skip LaPlante, who is a music instrument builder. He builds instruments out of like odds and ends, inst- uh, big recycled materials he Mm. was an artist in residence for materials for the arts and did like this beautiful like wind chime project at flushing town hall so i was playing viola and i had my instrument plugged into an amplifier with like different loops and he had all these different instruments out like and i was grabbing some of those instruments but also going back to the viola and basically we created these really abstract shapes and we were sitting in the corner of the stage and we would just sort of let the dancers dance for as long as they needed. And we kept this theme going. And then when we saw them move, we just moved to the next theme. Yeah. And that was more, it was kind of similar in a way that we were responding to the dancers, but yeah. it felt a little more organic to me because when you're trying to like also have the musicians be part of the choreography, like it was just like a very ambitious idea, but again, so it really depends on the idea of the choreographer and like, yeah, meeting their vision and kind of making exactly, that work out. Yeah, it's great. Now let's flip it to the other side of kind of an audience. You know, taking this in, you you've performed uh, just being as part of lots of different genres. I'd imagine audience reaction can be different. And I know within an orchestra or a classical environment, it is a little bit more reserved, more subdued. Uh, when you're getting into some of these different uh, types of genres, uh, is the audience reaction more interactive? Are you uh, seeing even or culturally does it does it play a little bit different uh, in different environments? Definitely. <laughs> like when I'm playing with when I was playing with the mariachi band or when I was playing with the Ecuadorian band. I mean, people dance in the audience yeah. like it would be silly to like sit in a seat and listen to some of that music. Mm. Uh, and, um, you know, like I think even I've been to some really wonderful classical music concerts that are like house concerts. Mm. You know, I think that is a setting where it feels like you can feel the audience reaction a mm. lot more Cause everybody's like sitting on the floor and like maybe moving around to get a drink or like, I mean, I actually kind of prefer that in a way, but mm. being on a stage is interesting too. Um, you feel 
um, you feel elevated. Actually, it's kind of similar to that like online Zoom performance. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, because you're like, there's like definitely a wall or a screen like between you and the audience when you're on the stage and yeah. the lights obstruct the audience often. Yeah. yeah. So we're almost, we're almost halfway through. I just remind listeners that this is the Truth to Power show and Radio for Brooklyn. We're here with uh, co-host Scott Raven and uh, violinist um, Conchetta Bate. Mm-hmm. So why, why don't we try... Diving into some playing. Well, you can play a little bit and give sure. some commentary. Yeah. So I prepared a couple different things for today. Um, one is a song that I've been playing with for a while. Um, it's it's by Miles Davis and Bill Evans. Um, it's called Blue and Green. Um, I really love this piece. Um, I actually don't know who wrote the words to it. I, I imagine the words to it were added later on, but... The words talk about jealousy, um, but actually, like, I think of blue and green as such calming, peaceful mm. colors. So I really, in my mind, I really liked, and also the the tune is so peaceful. So yeah. I kind of thought it was interesting how the lyrics are, like, um, encounter to the way the, the melody sounds. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'll play this piece for you. It's called Blue and Green. Thank you.
Yes. It will be All right. right. Yeah. Felt like I was scuba diving in a in a sea of blue green algae and just yeah. right coming coming up for air right at the end there. That's that's fantastic. Thank you. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thanks for um, listening. Yeah, that piece was really um, it was really healing for me. Like during the pandemic, I was playing it a lot. I was playing it in different keys. I was singing it like I was mm. playing it on. I was switching back and forth. So. It feels, again, it was so personally therapeutic for me to play that piece, but then it also feels really good to, like, play it for other people. Um, and I think, like, that's, uh, as we were saying before, like, that's the connection where you, music is therapeutic and benefiting me, but, at, like, how do you bridge that? How do you make that, like, meaningful for other people? So it's been fun to you know, having been playing this alone in my room <laughs> yeah, to play this out for people. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, there's like a, as I was saying about the biochemistry, it's like, you know, you get, get, when you hit certain notes, it's like you really get the cathartic emotional feeling. Uh, like, so I was saying being underwater, like kind of a thing, like feeling that contemplative, that really deep emotional core. Mm -hmm. And I can hear that deep emotional core there that I think really is, it has to do with the intentionality, as you were saying, like the intentionality of, of reaching that, reaching those emotional high points you know, or those, those cathartic moments, yeah. Right. Now, now before we hear another uh, piece, I really want to hear another one. Uh, in the bio, it says something about, like, the Grammys. And, you know, when I think of that, I think of, you know, how music is is judged. We're, yeah. we're talking about the piece. We're, 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 I don't know, critiquing it, but talking about it. Uh, can you talk about how that plays into your life a little bit? And, it's yeah. so funny that you mentioned my connection with the Grammys because it has been so hard for me. Yeah. <laughs> um. Recently, but um, I'll tell you a little bit about like how I initially got involved with the Grammys was um, I had a really terrible hand injury. I was attacked by a dog on the oh, street and had to have no. surgery on my middle finger on my left hand. Oh, wow. And I still have, you know, scar tissue and it was a long recovery of, um, you know, whatever, you know, doing physical therapy and stuff. And Music Cares helped me. They gave me a grant to help me like get through that time when I couldn't take so many gigs. Um, and music cares is run by the Grammys and like you see the award show, but a lot of people don't know about all the stuff that the Grammys does behind the scenes of helping musicians with addiction and recovery, like emergency grants. Like they helped a lot of musicians during COVID. And I was really interested in that music cares portion of the Grammys. Um, and I started to realize that it is good to have like a community and a professional organization for those reasons of having that support network. So you see when you watch the award show, the best like album of the year and mostly they're like the pop genres, but there's so many different awards that people don't even know about, like in music education and, and things like that. Um, and so I'm really excited to be voting this year. And I don't really know how the process works because I'm doing it for the first time and I'm just like learning as I do it. Um, but uh, I'm going to submit like my own album for nomination. Um, and I had to choose a category, <laughs> like a genre oh, for yeah. my music. Yeah. And it was actually very emotional for me because I had this feeling, of course, it's so wonderful. I play in so many genres, but what is my community like yeah. what is my scene where do I belong 
who are my mentors? Well, my mentors aren't even musicians, you know, like, so it's like, how, where do I fit in? Um, and I kind of was looking at the classical genres because my training is mostly classical, but then I was really attracted to the alternative genre. Mm. At first I was like, well, does that mean I'm like a weirdo? Cause I don't fit in any genre. But when I look at the people who like held those awards, they're like some of my greatest influences, like Fiona Apple, yeah, yeah. York, Sinead O'Connor, yeah. um, you know, and I was like, oh, like, I think I, I do kind of maybe fit in this category. So I think I haven't submitted my album yet, but I'm going to go. I think I'm going to go for, for, for the for alternative. alternative. All right. Yeah, yes. nice, nice. yeah, yeah. The, and the winner for the multi-genre award winner. Yeah. yeah. So like that could be a category. Alternative. Yeah. No, that, that fits. That's yeah. that's that's good. That's cool. Nice. Yeah, I like that. I like that too. And I do hear a little bit of like that, that kind of those influences in the, in, the in, in your description and some audio I've listened to. Yeah. So it's great. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, so we can also continue to explore some pieces if you'd like. One more piece would you like to explore? Yeah, yeah. So this is a composition that I wrote for solo violin and it's called Dust Under the Floorboard. I mm. wrote it you know, during quarantine, I was practicing in an attic <laughs> a lot. Again, like yeah. finding those quiet spaces where you can practice <laughs> and you won't yeah. bother other people. And even with the practice mute on, you just feel like, I don't know, I don't like people listening to me practice because I know that it doesn't practice is for you. It's for you. It's not performance. And it's mm. it's very vulnerable. So this piece is about that, you know, practicing in a quiet attic, trying to like... <laughs> Yeah. Be away from the world. <laughs> Thank you. 
Beautiful. Yes. Yes. Beautiful, beautiful. And I loved how it, it, the, the volume goes up and it goes down, very soft, meditative moments, and then kind of suddenly will, you know, it's very great, very great. Yeah, and I find it yeah. fascinating to, to, to have a song about practice because yeah. you had mentioned a little bit about kind of giving yourself permission to make mistakes uh, yeah. at times. And just the idea of that allows for more creative risks to end up happening. Yeah. Or you can maybe even try like the same part a couple times and it gets whether it's better each time or more explorative each time after uh re-engaging with it over and over i thought i noticed like the jeopardy theme in there <laughs> at uh, one point like dee, 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 and i was like oh yes it's like these really wide intervals um, <laughs> i was thinking about like uh you know when you're when you're in um, like an attic and the sun is coming through the window and yeah. there's like literal dust in the sunbeams, mm, yeah. like that's something that I just like own up these moments from like practicing and then I'm just like staring at these like dust, like you know, this is like quarantine life, like staring, staring at the, at dust, the dust mites, like, yeah, in the yeah. <laughs> and then. Um, you know, thinking about like the stagnant, the stagnation of that and the frustration. So there's like mm. some of that, but then also those like swooping, you know, trying to get out of that too. Yeah. It's interesting how these uh, ephemeral experiences, these experiences that we have, you're kind of translating into musical language and how, you know, whether or not the listener will be able to access the original piece, but the original experience, but they do have their own experience that, you know, kind of maybe the, in the translation kind of, really hits a powerful nerve, you know? So we really, what we're doing is we're taking an original triggering experience and then translating the essence of the, the emotional current that's underneath it, perhaps that really like is what we're trying to get to. But the, the original triggering experience may be just a, a cover for those internal uh, emotional experiences. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think anybody's going like, yeah, to know course, exactly yeah, yeah. what my, you know, inspiration yeah, course, was, yeah. but um, everybody just imbues their own, meaning into your artistic work and so the audience like when you're creating music for other people you have to understand that the audience is participating in the part in the creation Mm. through their interpretation of the piece yeah their frames of reference their their interpretation yeah yeah yeah. oh i love it Uh, um so yeah i mean as we're we're wrapping up a little here can you tell a little bit about some of the performances that you have coming up maybe some other um uh things that you're you're getting into currently so the big performance that i want to talk about is october 28th at the demena center for classical music it's going to be at uh 7 30 p.m and the concert is free excellent and this is going to be with case ensemble which is conchetta a body chamber ensemble i've put together a group Ah, and it's woodwind trio and strings uh, piano and guitar, yeah. and I'm singing and playing violin. Nice. And um, I recently got a grant from New York Foundation of the Arts and Department of Cultural Affairs to produce a concert as part of this uh, City Corps program. Mm. So I'm going to use that money to put it all into this one beautiful concert at Demena Center. They're, you know, basically partnering with us and. Um, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be what a, a lot of what you heard today, the kind of a fusion of genres coming from mm. a classical perspective. Yeah. Um, 
and it will be, you know, a very beautiful concert that will be recorded and it's going to be also like a live album recording and everybody will get a recording of the album after the show who participates and signs up for it. Um, So October 28th, Meta Center, um, Case Ensemble, 7.30 p.m. Oh, great. Now, do you, uh, you, you know, you practice, I guess you said, on your own, but do you ever go out to either open mics or other venues to test things out, or you prefer to do that uh, on your own? That is so funny because I went on a road trip last week just for vacation with my fiancé, and we stopped in Floyd, Virginia, which is like a big bluegrass, like Ah, old-time place. Yeah. And um, they had like an open mic at this place called Outer Spaces. <laughs> and my my partner's parents were like, you should play, you should play. I'm like, I don't know what to play. So I played the Mozart concerto in D major <laughs> at the yeah, Outer Spaces open yeah. mic. Um, and I was like, you know, I, I, I was just like, but I had been practicing that concerto lately. It was something that I had yeah. been revisiting through my physical therapy and, and revisiting some pieces I had worked on in the past. And I was like, you know what? Like, maybe, like, I'm not, you know, I'm just going to play it. And it, people were, like, really interested in it because all those string crossings and stuff, they sound like fiddle music. Yeah. You know, going back and forth. Anyway, so I sometimes I'll play, you know, you know, I, I enjoy playing. It's fun playing. I miss playing in front of other people. So, you know, if there's opportunities to test things out, um, I, I'll maybe go to some open mic where I know nobody important is going to see me play. Yeah. <laughs> like nobody in my, you know, world is going to see yeah. me play. Um, and also, I think house concerts are also a really nice place to, like, try things out because it's a really, you know, communal setting of support. Yeah. Um but yeah, um, I'm also, you know, polishing things for, for you know, the bigger shows as well. Yeah. And I just want to say, I really feel like your uh, background, your interests really speak to uh, the ideas of the show of, about truth to power and how discovering truth, discovering that universal truth, discovering personal truths and how it empowers. And it seems like it's very empowering for yourself and your, and your students to be able to find their voice and be able to really discover that they have something to offer, whatever their circumstances or whatever their, um, you know, uh, cultural backgrounds are, that they can draw from that those cultural backgrounds and and really find their voice. How does that land with you? How does you? How do you feel like? Uh, how do you feel about that kind of comment? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's kind of <clears throat> it's it's a really radical way of teaching. It's saying yeah. like instead of you having to like fit these standards, exactly, exactly yeah. like. Where are you at? Who are you? Cultural background is so personal. Mm. And I don't want to ask someone to assimilate or conform to a higher standard that is completely invented anyway. You know, Um, I want people to like as a teacher, I'm going to learn from hearing your story Mm. as my my students stories. Um, Obviously, my my goal is to guide and provide the technical proficiency needed to achieve that student's goals. Mm. But like this idea of like high art as something to assimilate to is very Mm. toxic, you Mm. know? And um, I think high art can be whatever you, whatever you want to create or make it, you know? Mm. And I think the audience will respond if it's, 
genuine and the intention of expression is there, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. It's an artistic concept, but I also think it's a, it's a radical one. It's like yeah. social, it's about social change mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Yeah. Like breaking down those walls of the institutions that have perpetuated inequalities for so long. Yeah. Now, how would students get in touch with you if they they're looking to um, to study and and to uh, to work oh. on, on theirs? If any possibility. Well, um, if you're not if you're taking new students or that sort of thing. Yeah, <laughs> my teaching studio is packed. Nice. Um, yeah, I imagine. Yeah. But if you're interested uh, in my work, you can visit my website. It's just my name, ConchettaAbadi.com. Uh, my name is spelled C-O-N-C-E-T-T-A-A-B-B-A-T-E. Um, and you'll find, you know, a bunch of my music there and more stuff about the teaching work I do as well. Um, I have a private lesson studio, and then I'm going to be offering two group classes in the fall called Creative Music, where the kids write their own music yeah. and play whatever instruments they want to play. Um, and then I also do freelance, um, you know, teaching artist work for Brooklyn Arts Council. And I'm at PS5 this summer, which has mm. been really nice, um, two days a week. So, yeah, if you just check out my website and you want to reach out and stay in touch, conchettaabody.com. Great. Cool, cool. The spelling of your name just reminded me of a violin. I mean, just yeah. the crossing of all the T's. I mean, it's just, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's great. Yeah. So as a mind listeners, this has been uh, Truth to Power Show. I'm ready for Brooklyn. We have a few more minutes, but I just want to give a couple of quick shout outs. Um, so now uh, Ready for Brooklyn is listener supported radio. So we definitely su- uh, appreciate and love your support. So you can give one time donation or monthly pledge by going to readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. There you'll find some great t-shirts, mugs, and other swag. We'd like to send you to say thanks. You can always use your phone to text RFB123 to 44321. It'll take a moment. You'll be able to use a digital wallet for your donation. Finally, if you shop on Amazon, you go to amazon.com slash smile and register Ready for Brooklyn as a nonprofit you wish to support. When you do or present your sales, we go to RFB and it'll cost you nothing. So it's a great way when doing shopping to, to do some good. Um, if you're listening to RFB when you're not in front of your computer, if you're listening to RFB when you're in front of your computer, you can free yourself up by downloading our free mobile apps for iPhone or Android, developing the app store for iPhone or Google Play Store for Android. Uh, be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter uh, for the latest news and new programming and upcoming RFP events. You can sign up at radioforbrooklyn.org slash newsletter. Um, finally, um, let me see. Uh, Radio for Brooklyn is sponsored in part by ProCare Biomedical Repair, offering little to no cost medical braces. More information is available at um, 844-598-6639. So if you'd like to find out more, go to 844-598-6639 about ProCare Biomedical Repair. All right. So, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, so uh, you want to play us out or? Yeah, so um, the last piece I'm going to I'm gonna sing for you is, um, it's a song that I wrote. It's called Counting. Mm. Um, I, I write a lot about mental health and mental health advocacy. And this piece is about disassociation and that feeling when you feel like you're, you know, being judged, maybe performing on a stage and you get like stage fright or something and you're not in your body and you're somewhere else. And sometimes counting is like a technique to Uh, come back to your body. So the piece is called counting 
And it's a, basically a poem that has three verses and repeats three times. Mm. So this is counting, um, which has not been recorded, but you'll hear it at the Domena Center concert with the full ensemble October 28th. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Each number represents a part of my body, a part of my body. I look at her, balls of glass placed around my hands carefully with Meaning, I'm living in tunnels of plants and clover. I sift around for some significance. So beautiful. And it's interesting how, um, you know, the listeners can't see, but they can probably hear that you're not using the bow, you're plucking out the strings. So tell us a little bit in the last final moments, if you could tell us a little bit about the process behind, you know, making the, you know, just choosing that, that sound as opposed to the bow. Yeah. It's just really hard to play and sing violin at the same time, which <laughs> yeah. I do a lot. Like yeah. if you watch my videos on YouTube and like listen to my yeah. album, I'm playing and singing at the same time. Um, and like, if you, it takes a long time to come up with those arrangements, and I try to keep the violin part really simple while mm. I'm singing, and then fill with flourishes with the with the violin playing in between. Um, so it's more like a technical yeah. approach of getting to hear both the violin and the voice and making them both shine. But this piece is actually arranged for like a full ensemble, so. Um, I hadn't really worked too much on like doing bowing stuff with it yeah. because it's it's originally written with like woodwinds and so I really hope you get to hear the full performance of it. Yeah. Um, however, I think the melody really does it's strong and I think it carries as an acapella piece. Yeah, totally, totally. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Wow. Well, this has been have been wonderful hearing your pieces, hearing your story. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for coming in. This is uh, for having so me. Great. So I just want to remind listeners, this has been the Truth to Power Show. And for Brooklyn, we have about like two minutes. But uh, we uh, we air every Sunday at 11 a.m. Our time may be limited, so definitely tune in live uh, so uh, to listen. And we can find out our back back episodes at readyforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power. You can go to readyforbrooklyn.org and see all the um, different talk shows and music shows and 
all the different all the different uh, live uh, live and pre-recorded uh, episodes we have um, overrated for Brooklyn. As I was saying, you can download the apps and such like that. So thanks so much for being here. We have about like thirty more seconds, and then we can go off. Um, so yeah, yeah, we have about a minute, minute thirty seconds or so. So yeah, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you, thank you. It was great meeting you guys. Thank you. <laughs>